Good morning, everyone. Well, as the reading is, Hebrew 10, verses 19 to 39, on pages 1208 in the Church Bible. A call to persevere in faith. Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, and let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know who, him who said, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, and again the Lord would judge his people. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. And by my righteous one will live by faith, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. Good morning, everyone. Uh, if we don't know each other, my name's Nick. I'm the vicar here. It's wonderful to see you this morning. Um, as we begin, I'd like to start with a question. Um, what is the coldest thing a swimmer can wear? What's the coldest thing a swimmer can wear? I know some of you uh, like to swim in the, in the sea every day, um, but uh, the Olympic uh, breaststroke swimmer, Adam Peaty, uh, believed, uh, without, not without reason, to be the greatest uh, breaststroker, or male breaststroker in the history of the sport, 
Uh, he has very strong opinions on the coldest thing a swimmer can wear. Now, if you've ever seen a picture of Adam Peaty, uh, it's probably in a very small pair of Speedos. Um, that's what he wears to the office. Uh, and um, you might think that's the coldest thing that he could possibly imagine wearing. Uh, but actually, he said the, the coldest thing you can wear is an Olympic gold medal. Well, it's a very striking thing to say, isn't it? This is a man who has given his entire life, that would, in his own words, his entire life to the pursuit of sporting excellence, the very pinnacle of which is Olympic gold. Uh, through his 20s, he was absolutely committed to what he called Project Immortality. He wanted to set a breaststroke world record so fast that no one would ever beat it. So his name would always be in the record books. He wanted a name that would endure, Project Immortality. Uh, and yet, as he achieved the very things that he had set his heart on, the things that he devoted every waking moment and indeed every sleeping moment of his life to, what he ate, when he trained, when he slept, where he was, everything in his life was all about winning gold. When he got there, he said, it's the coldest thing you can wear, an Olympic gold medal. He suffered terribly uh, with uh, depression and anxiety. He would win uh, massive races and then be left in tears in the pool. Not tears of joy and triumph, but tears of despair. Is this all there is? He's hardly alone uh, in, uh, in feeling like that. It's actually fairly common amongst elite sports people that once they achieve the thing they've dedicated their lives to, they feel utterly empty. Why is that? Well, the Christian contention would be that God has made us for himself. We've been made for a relationship with the God who created the universe and who created us to be in relationship with himself. And that without that, we can never truly be fulfilled. We can never really reach the goal of our lives. The great uh, North African uh, bishop uh, and theologian uh, Augustine, who was writing in the fourth century, he wrote the first ever sort of spiritual autobiography, uh, which is framed as a prayer, and he begins it by saying, O oh Lord, you have made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Uh, and Adam Peaty's experience would absolutely accord with that. Uh, and, and actually, in the midst of his emptiness over uh, his sporting achievements, he approached uh, the, uh, a chaplain to the Olympic Games, a man called Ashni Null. Uh, and in conversation with Ashni Null, he found himself going along to church. And he said he found there the thing that he'd been longing for all his life. That he found there peace and fulfillment. Now, it's, it's that experience that the writer to the Hebrews uh, here in chapter 10, uh, verse 19 and following, uh, is pointing to. That experience of receiving rest and completion, not by the result of our own agonizing striving, but by what the Lord Jesus has done in our place. That's what uh, verses uh, 19 to 22 are all about. Jesus, says the writer, has done everything that we in our restless striving are trying to achieve. 
He has given us confidence to enter the most holy place. He has shed his blood to enable that to happen. Now, that, that idea of the most holy place, that is the idea of the place where God dwells. It's the idea of being able to enter into the very presence of God, to know the one for whom we were made. So, verse 22, if you look down at it with me, he says, let us then draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings. Let us enjoy what Jesus has striven and won for us. Now, you can imagine that for the, for the sort of type A personality of, of someone like Adam Peaty, always striving, always restlessly going after the goal, that if that's true, that's an enormous relief, isn't it? That the, the complete fulfillment of all of our dreams, of the deepest longings of our hearts, has been won not by what we do, but by what someone else in love has done for us. We can draw near to God, he says, with full assurance, with confidence, with freedom, with a guilty conscience, just a memory in the rearview mirror. You see that in the second half of verse 22, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water which is the symbolism of baptism, isn't it? Of coming into uh, the people of God. It's a, it's, it's a picture of cleansing, of being fit and ready to enter the presence of God. Now, the people that first read this letter, the people he was writing to were wavering in their commitment to Jesus. They were wavering in their commitment to Christian faith. They were thinking, maybe there's another way. Maybe there's something else we can do because this is getting tough. They were tired. They were being persecuted by the Roman Empire and by those who lived around them. And they were getting weary. And so in the second half of our reading, and we won't dwell on, on this part of it, but the writer points to them what the alternative is. To, to receiving freely what Jesus offers, the alternative is to stand before God on your own, on your own merits, without anyone to, to deal with the problem of your sin, of your rebellion against God, of your living uh, against the grain of reality. You, you would face that on your own. And the fearful expectation of judgment is a terrible thing because just as it is a wonderful thing to know God as a friend... It is a terrible thing, and this is verse 31, to know God as an enemy. And so the writer wants these people who read it, and wants us here, those of us who are Christian, uh, to hold on to Jesus, and those of us who aren't, to find him. But how? What's the secret to keeping going? What can we do to actually draw near. How do we access that access that Jesus has won for us to the very heart of God himself? Now, I think in order to, to really understand what the writer does here uh, in verses 23 to 25, which are really the heart of this chapter, the, the 
things that follow on from the therefore. These things are true, therefore let us. In order to access that, in order to really understand that, uh, we need to accept that our view of reality needs to change fundamentally. Our view of ourselves needs to change fundamentally. And um, to try to sort of help us to understand that, uh, I've brought something with me. I don't know whether you can read what it says on that. Um, Many years ago, when our children were very little, uh, we heard an agonized cry from upstairs. And um, I won't name the child involved. That would be unfair. Uh, But uh, one of the kids kind of cried out in in shock and terror, and I went rushing up the stairs, and Sam came rushing up after me, and we, uh, we went into the bedroom, and there was a, a very frightened child saying simply, I have swallowed a pence. I've swallowed a pence. She had swallowed a... Oh. <laughs> it narrows it down, but it doesn't... <laughs> she had swallowed a coin. Now... Naturally, I would be naturally pretty blasé about those sorts of things. It's the kind of thing a child does. But uh, near neighbours of ours, uh, about two weeks before, had had a similar uh, experience. And the coin had stuck in uh, the little boy next door's pharynx. And he'd had to have it removed uh, surgically. Uh, and so um, we were a little bit more on alert. And, and so we, we rushed uh, said child uh, up to a and And um, she was examined. And we were told, no, there's nothing to worry about um, but you might just want to keep an eye and um, just make sure it's come through safely. So guess what my job was for the next couple of days? <laughs> and there it was, gleaming and shining in the bowl. Um, and um, this isn't it, actually. Uh, <laughs> but it was, it, was, it was a coin that looked very much like this. It actually wasn't a pence at all. Uh, it was um, an American coin. And on it, it had uh, three words in Latin, as many American coins do. E pluribus unum. E pluribus unum. Out of the many, one. Now, um, that sort of stands for the way that the, the, the different American states came together as one republic. Uh, it's the sort of vision of unity and diversity. Now, that's not an easy thing, even at the level of uh, states interacting. Um, there are many who would say that that's what the American Civil War was really fought over, how the states relate to, to the one, to the, to the federal uh, government. Uh, that's certainly a, a, a very live issue when it comes at the moment to relationship between uh, the governor of Texas and the federal government over securing the border uh, to the south uh, of the United States. But it's that relationship between the one and the many, which is actually one of the fundamental questions of human existence. I don't know whether you've ever thought about it in these terms, but the great philosophers have have all sort of struggled to understand or to to make sense of the relationship of the one and the many. How does the one relate to the many? How do the many relate to the one? And every culture and every society has to have a view of that. And you have a view of that whether you realize it or not. So many cultures see the thing that really matters as being the one, as being the the whole, the group, the hive, if you like. Uh, In fact, if you've ever seen um, the film, uh, oh goodness, Ant Z, anyone seen the film Ant Z? Yes, one person, brilliant. So, um, I recommend it highly to you. It's a fascinating film which is exploring exactly this question. Uh, How does the individual relate to the colony, relate to the whole? 
And the name's actually very clever because the, the, the key ant, the ant that you follow through the story is called Z. Uh, and, uh, and you can read Ant Z as ants or Ant Z. And, and so the question is, is, is it the one that matters? Is it the whole? Is it the, the hive, the community? Or is it the individual? Which is ultimately of value, the individual or the hive? Now, in, we, we live in a culture, by the way, that very much says the individual is the prime source of value, is, is the main thing. Uh, and so we can look at cultures where the hive is considered, you know, the whole, the, the community is considered uh, the, the most important thing. We can look at those kinds of communities with horror. I had a friend who worked um, for an oil company, uh, and he was responsible for health and safety. Now, I know that it, it, we might sort of slightly groan when we talk about health and safety and, and, and think about children wearing safety specs in the playground when playing conkers and all that sort of thing. Uh, but... Um, he had a totally different view on health and safety because on, on working in a culture where the individual was not considered as of primary value, he said there's no such thing as health and safety. You have people driving oil tankers sat on a kitchen stool that's not even bolted down. There's no safety protection for them at all. Uh, and, and no one really cares because the individual doesn't really matter that much. And one of the great horrors uh, as people, uh, f for people in the West looking east to the sort of communist regimes of the sort of 60s, 70s, and 80s was seeing how the rights of individuals were trampled underfoot by what was claimed to be the sort of you know, rights of, of the whole. If, if you're considered to be sort of dangerous to, 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 to the vision and values of the state, well then, off to Siberia with you. You're trampled underfoot. Uh, and those kind of hive cultures don't value the individual as primary. And we can see how kind of oppressive and destructive that is. But if, imagine you lived in a culture where the whole is considered as valuable. What would you think when you look at the West? Well, you'd look at us with horror. Fractured isolated individuals, perhaps not interchangeable units of production, but interchangeable units of consumption, where, in the end, our, our kind of identity is in what we buy, what we have, what we experience, but fundamentally we experience this problem of isolation, interchangeability, and again being used, and to some extent trampled underfoot if we're not useful or valuable. Isn't it one of the great epidemics of the modern age? The crisis of loneliness. People who are utterly isolated. Who might not speak to anyone in a whole week. Who feel so very alone. We're increasingly experiencing the, the sort of horror that follows in the wake of individualism as a society as we're more and more separated off from the whole, fractured, individualized atoms living in a chaotic universe. The Christian view of reality, as received in the scriptures, is different to either of those options. And this is why it was such a, a, a huge philosophical problem is that neither making the individual of primary value nor making the, the hive or the whole primary value 
really works ultimately. The reality of, of humanity is that we can't function purely as individuals, and yet the subjection of the individual to the whole is also extremely disturbing, distasteful, terrifying even, if you end up on the wrong side of it. The Christian vision of reality starts not with us, but with God. With a God who is at his heart, personal and loving, but also united. That's what Christians mean when they talk about the Trinity, is that there is one God, but that one God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit loving each other in eternity. So that love, relationships of self-giving, other person-centered love are at the very heart of reality. And when you're talking about God, what's ultimate, the one or the many? And the answer is both. God could not be God were he not three, but he could not be God if were he not one. And that explains why love is so vital to human life. Not a nice thing to add into our lives, but absolutely vital to human thriving. Without it, we cannot flourish. That's why it's so wonderful to see family and friends gathered here today to support Magnus and Raymond, uh, to know that they're at the heart of a, a loving family. Well, that fills the heart with joy, doesn't it? It's a wonderful thing to have family that loves you. In fact, it's vital to flourishing. Without those relationships of, of love, children do not flourish. They just don't. That's why the 17th century poet John Donne said, no man is an island entire of itself. We're not made to be simply individuals. And yet our individuality matters. Because within God himself, individuality and unity are equally ultimate. We cannot be ourselves without relationship. We cannot be ourselves without love. So our hearts yearn for union with the God who made us, but not as isolated atoms. And that's what's going on here in verses 23 to 25. I wonder what you notice about these verses. How is it then that we're going to enter into everything that Jesus has won for us, everything that he freely offers us? confidence, drawing near to God, full assurance, clean consciences. Well, he says, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. What do you notice about that? It's not an individual command, is it? He's not pointing at the individual and saying, so what you need to do is to hold on. He's saying, what we need to do is hold on. Let us hold to the hope, not that you as an individual profess, but that we profess. That's one of the reasons that we uh, gather, as we gather each week, one of the reasons that we say the creed together is we're expressing together our faith, not what I believe as an individual, but what we believe as the family of God. And then in verses 24 and 25, the key actions of, of, of sort of pressing on into Jesus are, are actions that we do together. Four things. Let us consider how we may spur one another on. Spurring one another on is the second thing. Carrying on meeting together, the third thing. 
and encouraging each other. The fourth thing. Four things to do, and they're all things done together. John Wesley, uh, the uh, 18th century uh, uh, divine, said, the Bible knows nothing of solitary religion. To truly live out the reality of what Jesus has achieved for his church, we must do it together. So I wonder how you approach uh, meeting together as church family. Verse 24, let us consider. As you're preparing to leave the house, as you're uh, either driving or walking uh, to church, as you come through the doors, what is on your mind? Could be all kinds of things. I hope we sing songs I like today. I wonder if so-and-so's there. hope the sermon's not too long. Uh, those sorts of things. But what the writer to the Hebrews says is that we should be considering, not just on our, in our Sunday meeting, but we should be considering uh, at the heart of our lives how we can spur one another on towards love and good deeds. And actually that word translated spur, I, I'm, I'm, I'm reliably informed, um, has the kind of meaning of, Let's irritate each other. Now, there are some churches that find that really easy, aren't there? Uh, and maybe there are people in church that, that you feel like that about. Uh, but actually, the idea is of, there's an idea of meeting together pr- producing some discomfort. I wonder, do you think about church life in the sense of, actually, this is a place where I need to be sometimes uncomfortable? Because the life of love and good deeds, the the good life that flows out of being reunited with the God who made us, is not easy. And we will, where we're comfortable, we will choose all kinds of ways in which to be self-centered, to live as individuals, to choose self over love, to choose self over others. And actually we have to Find ways to spur each other on, to irritate each other, to to prickle each other on into love and good deeds. Maybe that's why the next thing uh, he says is don't give up meeting together. Because the life of the church family is sometimes an uncomfortable life. But the spur is to be encouraged to continue to meet to be committed to each other, to view our attendance at church, our belonging to the church family, uh, not simply as something that we consume, but somewhere that we contribute, that we spur each other on, that we genuinely love each other. That's one of the things about families, isn't it? That we actually are prepared to make each other uncomfortable at times, particularly as a parent. Sometimes you have to say things to your children they don't want to hear, don't don't you? As a spouse, if you're married, sometimes you need your spouse to say something to you that you don't want to hear. Otherwise, you'll just go on the same. And so as church family, we need to be together and we need each other. But it's not all prickling and and discomfort. Uh, Quite the opposite. 
the second half of verse 25, not giving up meeting together, but encouraging each other, standing together. Just if you do look down with me to uh, verse, uh, verses 32 uh, to 35, Notice what their experience has been in the past. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. People encouraging each other to look forward uh, to the day when uh, everything will be put right. Project immortality. You'll never get there with a gold medal or a world record. But you do get there with Jesus. And notice that the people have, have, have persevered through terrible things standing together. We need each other. We can't make it on our own. Life is tough. Sometimes it's incredibly tough. We need to be prepared to stand together, to encourage each other, to love each other through that. One of the things that's very striking to me about Adam Peaty's testimony to coming to faith in Jesus Christ that he described uh, last year, uh, it was in many of the papers in June uh, 2023, is he said this, I didn't really have a community outside of sport But for me now, the only fulfillment and the only peace is every Sunday at church. It's striking. He found in Jesus an answer to the longing that no gold medal, no world record could fulfill. But he found it in the midst of a community of people, a church in which he was loved and known. I yearn that this church family should not be a place where anyone could be here for any length of time and say, no one really knows me. But that requires, doesn't it, each of us to have a mindset of being here not just for ourselves, but for each other. Now, in in the autumn, uh, we produced um, this little uh, booklet outlining our strategic goals for the next five years. And one of the absolutely central goals is this. We will be a church in which everyone is connected to a small group. That's because of this. This is a church family that is big enough that you could come and no one would ever really know the real you. You could come Sunday by Sunday by Sunday and never really connect. That's why we have small groups. And it is our aim that over the next five years, everyone will either be in a small group or if they're unable to attend, connected to a small group, known and loved and prayed for by a small group of people who are completely committed to spurring them on and encouraging them to keep going. If you're in a small group, that's wonderful. Perhaps for you this morning, the thing is to think about how can I be committed to my small group in a way that lives out this vision of a communal Christian life? If you're not in a small group, well, perhaps now is the time to think about joining one or maybe even starting one. 
We've got lots of work to do to, to, to organize ourselves better, to make that work better, and for it to be easier for people to find groups. But if you're not in one, perhaps today's the day to start thinking about being in one. Because the Christian life is not a solitary journey. Human life isn't. It was never meant to be. Because the God who made us is personal and is at his very heart love. And out of the overflow of that love, he gave us his only son so that we could find in him the very deepest longings of our hearts, the longing to belong to him and to each other.